John Deere union workers spike an agreement that included a 10% wage hike and other concessions, demonstrating workers' increased leverage amid a national labor shortage and a strong demand for farm equipment. And I'll talk with Crane's residential real estate reporter Dennis Rodkin about news from the local housing market, including how supply chain bottlenecks have impacted the renovation business and more. But the one thing um, we can hope for is that, for instance, people who would repair your, your frozen pipes, they saw this in the summer and started stockpiling materials. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Thursday, November 4th. Which, which is the ant and which is the grasshopper? Let's be the ant and stockpile. <laughs> right. not- yeah. In these uncertain times, it's important to have people you trust by your side. When 11,000 local business owners needed a Paycheck Protection Program loan, they turned to their Wintrust banker to secure funding because that's a relationship they can count on. Businesses are navigating some of the biggest challenges they will ever face. Wintrust is here to answer their calls. They'll answer yours, too. Start the conversation at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. Hi there, and welcome to Crane's Daily Just Live, brought to you by Wintrust. I'm your host, Amy Guth, and I'm joined by Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, as I am every week, here to talk about news from the local housing market. Hey, Dennis, how are you today? Good morning, Amy. How are you? I'm well, thank you. As per usual, you've been out there hustling stories. So let's see. Let's talk about the upper part of the market. That's a topic we revisit often. And I think a few weeks ago, you you said maybe we were perhaps doing some record-breaking stuff, question mark, but... Tell me the latest. Yeah, uh, we crossed a record that actually kind of blows my mind. So ordinarily, um, in our market, city and suburban, you see between 50 and 60 homes sold for $4 million or more. That's in a calendar year, January through December. This year, January through the end of October, there were 75 sales. Again, compared to a typical 50 to 60. One year, 2018, there were 72 sales, and about a third of those were in a new building, Number 9 Walton, uh, which is a very high-end building where nearly everything went for over $4 million. So the results were a little skewed then. Nevertheless, it was uh, 72 sales at $4 million and up. That was in 12 months. We have not only blown past that figure to 75, but done that in 10 months, and I don't even know where we're going to be at the end of, of 2021. That's that's a lot. I mean, that's kind of what you were thinking, that maybe we were going to hit that mark at least perhaps a little early. But who knows what, it, yeah, as you said, who knows what it'll be by the end of December. Yeah, it's a real surprise. It's um, it, So I mentioned number nine, Walton, in 2018. The uh, This year, the somewhat comparable building is St. Regis, the beautiful genie gang or studio gang building people are aware of in Lakeshore East. Seven sales there so far. Seven sales have closed. They may have more. They don't seem to um, put everything into the real estate records as soon as it closes. So there could be more. But the point of that is there have been seven out of 75 as opposed to one third of the 72 in a previous year, which is to say it isn't just because of St. Regis. Um, the primary uh, because of that, pe- that agents tell me is stock wealth. Um, there are a couple of things. There are other factors. There is everybody wants to has wanted to move during the pandemic, whether they were at the low end of the housing market or the extreme upper end, like we're talking about now. Um, 
There is a resurgence of buying downtown, which we saw nearly died in 2020. Uh, those are a couple of the factors, but the biggest one that real estate agents have mentioned to me most is stock market wealth. The stock market is up dramatically in the last couple of years, as investors know. And the way one agent put it was people are looking at that money and saying, let's do something with this, honey. Let's do something fun with this extra wealth we've gained in the last couple of years. Um, they would do it now because, of course, uh, well, because you want that money to do something for you and uh, you've got enough performing in the stock market that you comb some off and buy yourself either a second home downtown or a nicer home than you have. Uh, and that way it feels like your investment is working for you in two ways. It's it's really been remarkable to see. And like I said, I don't know where we'll be in December. At the current pace, we could be at about 90 sales. Yeah, that would be very significant. Um, and that's interesting. Like that's that's what's fueling it. You know, we wouldn't I, I don't know. I, that wouldn't have been my guess of, of why that's fueling it. But that's that's interesting. Well, you know, let's keep in mind, I mean, this economy, for people, the economy is serving well, it's serving them really, really well. Right. Uh, those who, of course, were out of work and, and have had other problems brought on by COVID are at one category. But if you've been, if you're a high end, high net worth person involved in the markets, uh, you've been doing quite well the past year or so. And the other thing that people are taking advantage of uh, Real estate agents have told me, you and I talked about this once before, but it came up again. High end, high net worth people ordinarily wouldn't get a mortgage. They would just pay cash, buy my $4 million condo for cash, and then spend another million to rehab it or whatever, all out of cash. But mortgage interest is so cheap. And my other money is doing so well in the market that, as one agent said to me, it's borrowing a mortgage is like getting free money. It's so inexpensive to borrow that a lot of them, a lot of these high net worth people buy with a mortgage anyway, because the rest of their money can perform by so much more. Um, the idea was if your money is making X in the market and you have to spend 3% or less on a mortgage, then really your money is just making X minus 3% and it's still making a lot for you. Um, so that's another phenomenon we're seeing up at the upper end of the market is using a mortgage. This this year or this boom of a, a year and a half or more has changed all kinds of rules in real estate. All right, let's switch a little bit. I want to talk about salt negotiations. There's a little bit of a um, little bit of news in that area. What what do you know there? There is. Uh, I'm not covering it myself, but we uh, keep pulling up Bloomberg stories and finding that. It, so the, the salt deduction was limited to ten thousand dollars in the 27, uh, 2017 tax bill. Uh, property taxes above ten, or I'm sorry, any taxes paid to a governmental entity above ten thousand dollars were subject to uh, were no longer subject to a deduction while they had been previously. Uh, and because we're a very high property tax state like California, like New York, like especially New Jersey, um, our homeowners have been very hard hit. We had a couple of stories back when the, the uh, 2017 tax bill first started affecting people's um, tax returns. And, it, and we were very hard hit. There are agents up at that upper end of the market who will tell you that one of the reasons prior to the pandemic, the market had slowed down quite a bit is that people were uh, adding in the lost 
deduction. They were saying, well, you know, now I can't deduct all those taxes. So I have to be more careful about the total I spend. Looks like that's gone now because we're in this free flowing money period. Um, so uh, the latest news from Bloomberg is that it looks as if in Washington, what we're going to get is some kind of a reprieve. It looks like maybe remove that limit for a few years and then bring in another limit a couple of years from now, either 10,000 or uh, there was one proposal for $75,000. Any property, any taxes you pay up to $75,000 would be, um, would still be deductible. Some people have argued for removing that limit entirely for going back to a day 2016, when um, all your taxes were deductible on your taxes, uh, all all taxes you pay to one government were deductible on your other on your federal return. But there are people in Congress who've said that would benefit the wealthy too much. So let's set it so that it only helps middle income and lower income people. But it looks like in this budget package in Washington, there may be a reprieve on this change in the property tax uh, calculation that high-end people in Chicago have, in the Chicago area have had to make the past several years. So last week, as we were signing off, you were talking about what was coming up in the week ahead. And one thing you mentioned was about how supply chain issues have been hitting the home building industry. Tell me a bit about that. Um, hitting hard really is the sort. So uh, everybody has seen the stories about it's hard to get lumber, it's hard to get steel, all those kinds of things. Well, lumber and steel are very often used in homes. And so I talked to a lot of um, renovation contractors, a lumber yard owner, and all of them said that everything has changed for them during these supply chain disruptions. Um, one uh, uh rehab contractor told me that ordinarily he can give you his estimate and you have like 30 days to decide what to do. He works for a high-end clientele. They might be spending $100,000 on a renovation. And so he gives them a, a costed out uh, estimate and he can wait a month or longer for them to respond. Now they need to respond in seven days because the prices of materials can go up that quickly. Um, prices are going up so fast in a lot of uh, on windows and, and lumber and things like that, or have gone up so fast that contractors, vendors don't really know what to do. So if you're this one rehabber's uh, remodeler's client, ordinarily, he said, you might not even look at his email in the first seven days because you're busy, that sort of thing. Now you really need to look because the price could go up seven days later. Um, most of the people I talked to said that customers are aware, you know, they've all read the stories about the supply chain disruptions. So people aren't saying, oh no, you're trying to gouge me. They're saying, yeah, I get it. What can I do to sort of get to bob and weave and make this happen? They're ordering supplies far earlier in the process, ordinarily ordering them with like three weeks delivery time. So that, so that for example, windows show up at the site when you're ready to add windows. Now, um, when they get the job, they order everything. There are um, uh, vendors who are piling materials in warehouses. You order your entire kitchen months in advance and everything gets stored in a warehouse because you don't know if it's going to be available when the as the job is progressing. Um, so people are having to stockpile. They're having to deal with higher prices, having to deal with slowdowns. Projects may take much longer. Uh, and, you know, after that story came out, Amy, I heard by email from 
several other remodeling people who said, oh yeah, absolutely. And here's how bad it's been for me. And it's, it's always interesting when you do a story like that, that really taps a vein. I was pretty sure that people are really being slowed by these supply chain disruptions, but then you get this confirmation and reconfirmation from people saying, yeah, it happened to me and here's my sob story. Were the, the people that are doing these renovations, did they have that kind of warehouse space or are they having to go get that in order to stockpile the materials to build the houses and remodel them? All depends. Um, yeah. Some of them, I spoke to homeowners in Elgin who uh, just knew somebody with some warehouse space and they were able to put it there. And uh, there's a lumberyard owner in Evanston who also owns a window company in Lake Bluff and has a big warehouse there. So he's been storing supplies for his Evanston, lumber and things for his Evanston customers there. Everybody's looking for a place to store it. Everybody's looking for somewhere to put it. If you get it in, that's, that's the people who in advance thought to get it and get it all in the other and, and need a place to store it. The other is you make your orders on a timely basis and on the what used to be a timely basis and realize, oops, it ain't going to be here. And, you know, my customer's project is going to be wrapped in plastic a lot longer. Yeah, um, there's a, a um, air conditioning and, and heating contractor I spoke to, um, American weather makers, and they said, you know, the problem there is you buy a furnace when your old furnace died. So you need one right now or a water tank. I think a hot water tank was the example, the best example they gave me. When your water tank fails, when your hot water heater fails, you need one the next day, um, or else you're gonna have to take a lot of cold showers. So they ordinarily would have just a couple of tanks in their warehouse, because that's about how many they would need, they would cycle through in time with time to replenish. Um, now they have up to eight, because they just don't know how long it will take to replenish and they don't want to get down to zero and then have a client call and say, I need a water heater today. I can't help but imagine that's going to get a bit worse as we go into winter and people need, you know, HVAC or, you know, heating repairs and hot water and things like that. And people are thinking about frozen pipes and you've got to act right now. I can't imagine the winter being helpful in that regard at all. Yeah, I don't think so either. Several of the people I spoke to said they expect it to get worse before it gets better. But the one thing um, we can hope for is that, for instance, people who would repair your, your frozen pipes, they saw this in the summer and started stockpiling materials. Um, we can hope that there aren't enough problems that they run down their stockpile. But um, yeah, some people were looking at it and realized, okay, you know, let's play which, which is the ant and which is the grasshopper? Let's be the ant and stockpile. <laughs> or, you know, if you're if you're this building, I mean, I feel like the pipes, the pipes freeze every single year for me. So I'm filled with dread by this story because I'm like, oh, but hopefully they've had some years to stockpile because literally every year it's a thing. I'll just, I'll just, maybe I'll just show up at your door. Dennis, can I borrow your shower? <laughs> I'm dying here. <laughs> Do you have hot water? You can't today because a water main broke on our street. So we have no water today, but... We'll, we'll revisit this if the pipes freeze. Uh, all right. Other stories to talk about. Let's talk about the, um, how the Illinois realtors took a look at racial bias in, in home refinancing. What an important topic. And this is so interesting. What did they find? Uh, they found a pretty strong pattern of uh, racial bias or of, of a differential between uh, people who, between black and white homeowners who are rejected for mortgages. Um, it is timely. The Illinois realtors did this in large part because a lot of members were saying, 
hey, is there a pattern? Because there were uh, in 20, uh, 2019, 20 and early 2021, there were a lot of news accounts that were a little bit more anecdotal. They were solid, but based on individual people's experience, a black person gets the home appraised, the number comes in really low and they strip anything out of the house that looks remotely African-American and the numbers go up. Um, there are patterns that a lot that real estate agents in Chicago were detecting. So the Illinois Realtors Organization did a study. Uh, they worked with a professor at the University of Chicago and um, they found that Black homeowners nationwide, not Chicago, Black homeowners are rejected for refinance application, refinance mortgages at more than twice the rate of white homeowners. And let's explain the refinance thing. Um, they use that data because it's more clean. Um, I am getting a, a reappraisal of my own home's value when I go for a refinance. If I'm buying your home, that's a little bit different. I'm going for an appraisal of your property. So they went to the refinance figures. Um, they believed that the numbers would hold true for purchase mortgages, but but they had to go with, with refinancing. And they found not only that our black homeowners are rejected at twice the rate of white homeowners, but those numbers have held true both in hot real estate markets and in cold. And they found what they called sort of a homogeneity effect um, Black and brown homeowners who apply for mortgages who live in black and brown neighborhoods have sort of a steady rate of rejection. White homeowners who apply in white neighborhoods have a very low rate of rejection, but white homeowners who live in black or brown neighborhoods have an elevated level of rejection, which is to say if you're a white homeowner living in a black or brown neighborhood, uh, the appraisal is likely to come in considerably lower um, based in part on, or based, it appears, on the racial makeup of the neighborhood. What's what's being proposed to try to mitigate this? I mean, this is seems very systemic, so there's, that, there can't be an easy fix, but what could be done? Uh, it is systemic, or it, it does appear systemic. The first thing is to get the data, which they've done. Mm -hmm. uh, the appraisal organizations. So this is sort of awkward because it's the real estate people saying, oh, it's the appraisal people, but they're not blaming anybody. They're just looking for here because uh, real estate agents, of course, have to work with appraisers to get a house to close. Um, and the appraisal institute told me that they're doing several things. One um, that is simpler is they now have a course for appraisers that works on helping you recognize your unconscious bias. You may be a white appraiser who went into a majority black neighborhood and didn't realize um, one black real estate agent told me that homes get appraised in Woodlawn, which is changing very quickly where home values are going up pretty fast. And an appraiser might look at some of the more still depressed uh, majority black neighborhoods farther south and not really understand the current market value of that home in Woodlawn. So one of the things to do is try to strip out that unconscious bias via this class. And the other is a pretty interesting initiative. Um, to be an appraiser, you need a mentor. And if I'm going, if I'm an existing appraiser and I'm going to mentor somebody, it's likely to be, it's often my own child because it's sort of a, a family business. And so I would mentor the next generation of my own family, I'm white, that person very likely is also white. Um, so what they're trying to do is diversify the ranks of appraisers further. There are black, there are brown appraisers, but they, the Appraisal Institute 
and, and lending organizations are working hard to uh, spread that out even further with initiatives designed to attract people uh, who, are, who are not white into the appraisal business. Certainly it won't be a quick and easy fix or it would have been made hopefully by now but that is interesting to think through like where where are the places where we could try to mitigate this and and i mean starting with appraisers seems reasonable to me yeah i agree and and i was glad uh, the appraisal i had spoken to the appraisal institute months ago but when this research was all starting and they already were starting sort of to look at it you know any any organization like that at this point really needs to look and say so is there bias in our system? Is there something that is um, affecting, th that is inequitable? And so they had started looking and, and now, you know, with this kind of data in their lab, they're more able to say, yeah, we're, we're stepping up our efforts. All right, let's talk about some houses. First, let's start with one that seems like a tree house. I mean, I say, I've said that about a lot of houses, to be fair. Anytime there's like very beautiful nature surrounding a house and the architect has made a point to bring that indoors with lots of glass. But you, in this case, you use the word tree house in the reporting. So talk to me about this place. Well, and I and the the sellers say the same. This house, uh, this is sort of an awkward photo, but it shows the setting of the house. This is by Harry Weiss. And you'll see when we get inside, it's spectacular. Harry Weiss was a very prominent architect in Chicago, uh, built this in 1977. At that time, he had done uh, the 17th Church of Christ Scientist on Wacker that a lot of people know, the Metropolitan Correctional Center, the jail, the triangular jail downtown that people know. Um, he was building big projects, but he built this smaller, more, more intimate. I mean, it's 5,800 square feet, but it's not the size of a multi-story jail um, in DeKalb for the head of the, the DeKalb agricultural um, firm that was, no, it, it went through several names, but ultimately DeKalb Genetics, the people who hybridized corn. You recognize their logo if you ever drive through country roads in Illinois as a, like a corn cob with wings. And the second generation CEO, Tom Roberts Jr. and his wife, Nancy built this house it's right on that first picture showed it. It's right on the banks of the Kishwaukee River or technically the south branch of the Kishwaukee River. So it's right on the river. And Harry Weiss designed this with all the wild geometry that he uses in his buildings like the Triangular Jail in downtown Chicago. Um, but as this riverfront house and it's fascinating. This is being sold. It came on the market on Wednesday for only the second time. The Roberts sold it. Uh, in about 2003 to a couple who are now selling it because their kids are grown. And it's got, you can see from this window, there are trees. From that first window, we saw that big circular one. You see the trees because it's, so it's on four and a half acres. On the other side of the river are golf courses and forest preserves. It's in this very wooded area. So anywhere you are, according to the sellers, you're looking at nature. You're seeing bald eagles and deer and fox foxes and herons um, or the sky from the bedroom there are all these or this uh, breakfast room solarium style there are all there are windows that really sort of frame the sky um, and and it's also I mean it's just a beautiful piece of architecture because um, it's got catwalks and and sloping ceilings and this giant stone fireplace here's the primary bedroom this is where she referred to a treehouse. 
Um, so he's got, Weiss had his triangles and you can see triangles and, and other shapes in the layout of, or in the, the structure of this room. But from that bed, you go out to a, a terrace that looks right over the river, or you go out another way to the hot tub. And then you can also go out from the hot tub to the swimming pool. Um, it's just, it's this, it, she said it's like a resort or a lodge and it really feels like it. Um, this is more of that same bathroom. There's a lot of teak used in the house. Harry Weiss sort of famously was a, a, a sailor and teak, of course, was very popular in sailboats. He used a lot of teak in this house. And then when they did renovations of this bathroom, the kitchen, other spaces, um, they used a lot of teak. Look at this hot tub. So again, this is off that primary bedroom. The hot tub is round. And then above it is this round skylight. Um, it, you know, they're like portholes. Uh, and then you've got this view out to the pool. It's really, it's just such a cool place. And here we're standing on one of the catwalks. The catwalk is wild and we'll talk about it, but you're looking down, you can see at the far right, that's the river. That's how close to the Kishwaukee River you are. And at the left, look, it's a conversation pit. It's a sunken conversation pit with a built-in couch. You know, how 1977 could it be? Um, and this catwalk is really interesting. So here, you're on, a, you're on a second story catwalk across the middle of the house. You can see it here. Outside at either end, out front of the house and out back of the master, uh, the primary bedroom, the, there is a catwalk that continues this line, but it's down at ground level. So like the line goes like this to get you into the house, then like this through the house, then like this out from the primary bedroom for views of the river. That's so interesting. It, it's a, oh my gosh, it's such a cool house. This is a loft. There are two lofts at opposite ends of that sky, that, that uh, catwalk, that bridge. This is an office where, I mean, look at that. It looks like you're looking out at your own dream. Oh, I mean, how can you not, you know, like write the great American novel sitting there looking at that, like looking out over the trees with this little loft space. Right. Very cool. And this is, and it's November, it's national novel writing month. So Get over there. They're asking eight hundred ninety-nine thousand for this house. It's on four and a half acres, um, and it's what did I say? It's sixty-six miles from the loop. Really, just I mean, it's it's great mid-century modernism by a great architect, Harry Weiss. It's it's I I'm just really bowled over by this one. You mentioned um, you mentioned boating earlier, and I was going to say this has it really does feel like it has these nautical elements in it. Something about the the ceiling, all those triangles, and the use of white almost feels like sails, not what not walls. It almost feels like like in the primary bedroom that feels like a big sail next to these kind of masts with this you know cool all these shapes of the windows and the ceiling around it. Yeah, I think you're right. I and look how the bathroom is sort of tucked in like a bathroom in a in a sailboat. Yeah. And people say that about, uh, so this is sort of the country house version of the river cottages that Harry Weiss built right next to the Hubbard Street Bridge on the west, what would that be, the west bank of the north branch of the Chicago River. They're, they're also, there are triangles and other geometry there. They're tighter packed and they're, I think they might be five stories high, but similarly I have references to boats and, you know, boats pass back and forth in front of those all the time. Um, I, yeah, I think this is a, it's a pretty cool place with references to boats and nature and, and uh, all sorts of elements of Harry Weiss's work. Definitely. And I love that stonework and this kind of metal staircase kind of set up against it that just feels, um, I don't know, it, it, I mean, it feels both very natural, but it also, again, has this kind of nautical feel to it, kind of all wrapped up in one building. 
And spiral stairs, spiral stairs, 1970s. I swear, I lived in two yeah. different houses in the 1970s with spiral staircases. They were like, the and in the credits of the old Phyllis TV show, she comes down yep. a spiral staircase. To me, a spiral staircase means mid-1970s. Here's a catwalk um, that you enter the house. Um, so you, you have parked, you've driven up to this thing and you walk across, essentially walk across a bridge to enter the house. And so you mentioned sales, which you can see in mm. the panels of this front, but you can also sort of see a Tudor house, right? Yep. You see Absolutely. an abstraction on Tudor. You see the dark beams and the white plaster. Uh, I, I mean, I think Harry Weiss was doing about 12 things at once, which from what I understand is what he was capable of as an architect. Yeah, absolutely. And yet, if you were to say, well, it's kind of like a boat and it's kind of like a treehouse, but it has this sort of deconstructed Tudor feel, you'd be like, what in the heck? But it works. It works. And it looks very cool. It does. It really does. And I mean, you can just imagine you come in through this wooded drive and you come to this house and I, I don't know what is on what else is on this street. But DeKalb has, you know, generally a lot of places do generally pretty conventional homes. And then you would come to this and realize, oh, yeah, this is not all those other houses. Yeah, this is definitely something different. Oh, and by the way, there's a tennis court as an aside. And yeah. the pool was designed by Weiss. It also has sort of unusual geometry. It's kind of the shape of an aspen leaf. Hmm. You can see um, some people I've seen articles online and the sellers told me they've heard that that uh, some people say it's shaped like a corn cob, like the DeKalb Agriculture logo. I can't see a corn cob. Um, I you can it's like a it's like an oval with points yeah. at the end. It's like an asp, it's an aspen leaf. Aspen leaf, corn cob. There's going to be like a you know an internet debate now over what this pool shape is, like the blue and black dress or the gold and white. You know that whole thing. It's going to be that. This is a really neat house. There's a lot of different elements. There's a lot to look at. And again, if you would if you would describe all these elements to me and you'd be like, okay, there's a there's a pool that might be a corn cob and it might be an aspen, and it's you know the Tudor elements and like a boat, and there I'd be like, stop. There's too much going on in this house, but it's not. It really kind of works and it flows and it feels very very airy and interesting. Well, I don't know if we saw the one photo that really really is kind of amazing when you come in the front of the house. And you have on what it's, it's relatively narrow. And on one side, you have a room with a stone floor and that stone floor continues out to the pool. And on the other side, you have the big living space and a wall of glass going out to the river. I mean, going back to the concept of a boat, you've got water yeah. on both sides of you, pool and river. It's really, I mean, uh, you can't understate how incredibly cool Harry Weiss's architecture is. Anybody who's ever seen our triangular jail downtown. I mean, you know, people come to town, you show them that and they're like, what? Um, because it's a pretty unusual building. And others, the the Swiss Hotel, also triangular in Lakeshore East. He did some pretty oh, cool stuff. That one too. Wait, I got to go back to the part. You, people visit you and you take them to the jail? <laughs> I got to go back Nobody to that. Me. Uh, I probably <laughs> did. Yeah, when, when various family members, came, well, you know, on the architecture tour in general. Sure, fair enough. All right. I'm like, you know, oh. Nelson Algren did that with Simone de Beauvoir. You might know that on when she came over from Paris, um, Nelson, Bu Nelson Algren took her for their first date down to um, 26 in California. I did not know that, but that's so, you know, like win me bar trivia one day for sure. Yeah. And, for sure. and so there's precedent for me taking people to the jail, Amy. Just to do as Nelson Algren did indeed.
I learn something from you every single day, Dennis. I really do. All right. We have another story I want to talk about before we go too far into Nelson Algren territory. All right. So let's talk about um, a Lincoln Park site that instead of a mega house, it's going to be condos. I think you and I probably, I'm pretty sure we talked about this when it looked like it was going to be a mega house. And then when it was, it looked like it wasn't going to be a mega house. There have been several turns in this story. Um, this is a property on Howe Street. It's approximately three normal, three standard lots. And until May of this year, standing on it was a house that was made of two houses, two 1870s cottages that had been connected by sort of a bridge piece in between. At one point, it was the North Shore Dairy. Uh, and then from uh, the early 80s until last year, it was a house. It was the home of a couple who redid it, turned it into a home. Really kind of a cool place and dates to the two. These two buildings you can see now dated to the 1870s, I think 1873. Uh, the, fam the couple who lived there for a very long time had a deal in 2018 for with a developer to build a 15,000 square foot house, a 15,500 square foot house. That developer ultimately backed out. The deal fell through. And then the couple sold it, put it back on the market, sold it in May 2020 for $5.85 to somebody who immediately demolished the houses. Uh, the lot can, without any zoning changes, hold 15,000 square, 15,005. The neighborhood was saying that the person who bought this, I was never able to find the identity of the person, was planning a 25,000 square foot house, which is giant. Mm -hmm. Again, we're talking about three Chicago lots uh, on Howe, which is the neighborhood where a lot of those multi-lot houses have been built. So they bought it in May 2020, demolished these historical buildings, and in May 2021, put it back on the market. Uh, they, I, again, I couldn't find their identity. They sold it relatively quietly. It sold in August for, so they had paid 5.85 million for it. They sold it for 6 million to a developer who is now putting six condos on the site. So instead of one giant house, it's six condos. In a technical sense, it's eight condos. They designed it as an eight condo building, but two people bought two units each. So in, in other words, you can accommodate eight families where there were going to be, there was going to be one family. Um, and this developer told me, you know, there's a real shortage in Lincoln Park of these family-sized condos. He, he and his firm built two other buildings, half the size of, of the one planned here uh, on Mohawk, and they sold every unit before the buildings were finished. In this case, um, they haven't even broken ground yet, and they've sold all but two of the condos. They've sold six units of the eight or four of the six, depending on how you count them. Um, and so they have two left. He, he said that prices aren't set yet on those. There'll be at least 1.5 million and probably not higher than 3 million. So I'm guessing that the other people spent considerably more, but I don't know because nothing has, uh, I, I've said those units were sold. I should say they're under contract to buyers because they won't actually be sold until they're built and the developer delivers them. Um, and that will probably be when we find out what they're, uh, what they have paid for them. But so we go from these two historical buildings that were one house with a lot of yard to a plan for a giant house, probably with some yard, to six or eight condo units. 
now that I'm looking at the picture of the original houses, I do remember talking about this place. And remember, I remember we were talking about it because there was there were questions around its fate and what was going to happen to it. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. And um, Mary Schmeek at the Tribune, before she yes. retired, uh, she befriended these owners and she got very personal comments from them about what they had done to redevelop the uh, I don't think it was a dairy when they bought it, but it was run down and they had really worked hard on it. And and she has written about a lot of the sort of the older houses in that neighborhood that have gone. And um, it, it's very interesting that when I put this story on Twitter, when did we publish the story on Tuesday and I put it on Twitter, the great preponderance of comments were, yay, so happy that it's going to condos. But I did have a couple of people say, no, it really should be a single family home. And mm -hmm. I asked one, so you you wanted that larger house? And she said, yeah, that's better for the neighborhood. Interesting. A big mansion. And I, I don't know what I think, but I do know that the larger number of people on Twitter were saying they'd rather see the condos, but it's not unanimous. There are people who would like to see another of those multi-lot houses. Well, we'll have to check back on this story once they're once the condos are built, once it's all done and they're all sold. All right. Well, what's coming up in the week ahead? Amy, I've got a story that I'm so excited about. It's because it's just so different. Neighbors who got together to buy rehab and be the landlords of a derelict building in their neighborhood. Just neighbors. We all walk past it all the time. We're not happy about its status. Let's fix it. How cool. Well, we will talk about that this time next week. Thanks so much, Dennis. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, the streets of Woodfield hits the market. Blackstone has hired a broker to sell the shopping center next to Woodfield Mall in Schaumburg. And the private equity giant is expected to lose money on the investment. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Is your student taking the SAT, ACT, or a high school admissions test this year? Academic Approach wants to help them get prepared. Academic Approach's time-tested tutoring programs ensure students grow their academic skills, improving their performance on standardized tests. The work together begins with a consultation with an Academic Approach director who will meet with you and your student to discuss their unique needs. Then Academic Approach creates an effective, fully customized study plan that targets their goals and matches them with a tutor who will be by their side, guiding them through instruction and practice throughout their tutoring journey. Get in touch today to learn how Academic Approach can help your student transform into a confident, successful test taker. Learn more at academicapproach.com slash daily gist. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Members of the United Auto Workers Union rejected a deal with Deere & Company, extending a strike. The deal offered improvements over one that workers rejected before going on strike and included larger wage increases, no new tiers to retirement benefits, and a signing bonus of $8,500. The results, 55% against and 45% in favor, were posted on the UAW Local 450 Facebook page. The rejection of the agreement demonstrates workers' increased leverage amid a national labor shortage and strong demand for farm equipment. 
Nearly 10,000 deer workers went on strike on October 14th for the first time since 1986, having rejected a prior deal that called for a 5 to 6 percent wage increase for the first year. The willingness of the union to hold out for a still better deal is another sign that many U.S. workers feel compelled to push for better compensation as the economy aims to emerge from the pandemic. The timing of the strike put further pressure on deer, coming as supply chain snags for semiconductors and other parts are already causing issues at a time of peak demand for tractors during the U.S. harvest season. After the UAW rejected the latest contract offer, the company said, quote, we will execute the next phase of our customer service continuation plan. The company declined to provide specifics, but said deer will do what it takes to meet the needs of its customers who work in time-sensitive and critical industries and depend on the parts and equipment they need to keep running. Cook County Health and the University of Illinois Hospital are joining forces in pediatric care. The clinical partnership, which takes effect this month, aims to reduce emergency department utilization and shift more care into less expensive outpatient settings. That according to a statement from the healthcare providers. They note that combining pediatric services will expand access to specialty care while making it easier for doctors to collaborate. The pairing comes as hospitals compete for a dwindling number of complex pediatric cases. Such arrangements have become commonplace as more kids get treated in outpatient settings. For example, Lurie Children's Hospital and the Rush University System for Health formed a clinical partnership in February. And Advocate Children's Hospital, North Shore University Health System's Pediatric Division, and the University of Chicago Medicine Comer Children's Hospital have collaborated on pediatric care for several years. Thirteen pediatric specialty areas are included in the partnership between two hospital, Cook County Health and UI Health, which currently serve more than 100,000 children. J.P. Morgan Chase's top real estate banker in Chicago is now in charge of the whole country. New York-based J.P. Morgan has promoted Michelle Herrick to head of real estate banking, moving her up from market manager for the bank's central region to the national role. Herrick was selected by Cranes for its 40 under 40 list last year. She replaces Chad Treadway, who left the bank a few months ago to start a private equity firm. Roughly six years after buying the streets of Woodfield Shopping Center in Schaumburg, Blackstone is selling the property. The New York-based private equity firm has hired the Chicago office of Eastill Secured to sell the just-under 700,000-square-foot shopping center next to the Woodfield Mall. That, according to a person familiar with the decision who spoke with Cranes reporter Albie Galoon. Blackstone paid $168.5 million for the property in 2015, but its value has since fallen, and bids now are expected to be closer to $110 million. The property is about 96% occupied and includes a Whole Foods, according to a leasing brochure, as well as other major tenants, including Crate & Barrel, Dick's Sporting Goods, and AMC Theaters. Blackstone, one of the world's biggest real estate investors with a $411 billion portfolio, also owns the Willis Tower and River North Point, office buildings downtown. That's Crane's Daily just for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to my guest today, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to find your audio on demand. And remember to rate and review Crane's Daily Gist because that's the best way for others to discover our episodes. You'll also find hashtag Crane's Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and on LinkedIn. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time. 
I'm A.D. Quigg, host of the Cranes podcast, A.D. Q&A. This week, I sit down with Cook County State's Attorney Kim Fox to talk about violence in Chicago, her frustrations with city officials, and what her office is and isn't prosecuting. You can find it wherever you subscribe to podcasts and at chicagobusiness.com. I've never wanted in this role to be someone who is talking about violence. I want to do something about it. And I think for me, it's been particularly frustrating because while there's a natural tension between us and again, police, because we, you know, there's a checks and balances there, it has just felt like it's not been a collaborative effort. 